I invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. Our scripture comes from the book of Romans. We'll read chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Let's read God's good word together. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So I don't know about any of you, but I got wet this morning. Like not a little bit. I had an umbrella. I got here around 8.30 today and I was walking up. I was holding my umbrella and I might have, this half of me was, I, I text my wife afterward. I said, I am comically wet right now. My shirt was wet through my jacket. I, that's never happened to me before. And my shoes were light brown whenever I left. They were dark brown whenever I got here. And my belt was still light brown. It was super embarrassing. <laughs> and so, I mean, my pants are wet. This half, of, my umbrella did keep this half of me relatively dry, though. But I was not focused on this half. I was focused on this half, which was soaked. And so I had a choice whenever I got here. I, I was not super happy about being comically wet, despite the comic, comically adjective or adverb, sorry, L-Y. I, I was kind of frustrated. And so I realized, like, okay, you're already soaking wet. You can be mad about it and make it worse, or you can just roll with it. And so it wasn't quite instantaneous. I'm not that good. But uh, eventually I was able to laugh at myself and just kind of roll with it and say, okay, you're wet. Like, what else is going to happen? And uh, you know what? It turned out to be a pretty good morning so far. And so I'm grateful for that. But, you know, we've been talking about joy these last, this is our week seven of this sermon series. And one of the things that's consistent from week to week to week is when we talk about joy, we're not trying to get ourselves into the optimal circumstances that we make us happy. That's not how you find joy. That's often how we try. You know, if I can just get this job or if I can get this house or I can get my wealth to this level, then I'll be happy. That's not how it works. It's learning how to respond to our circumstances. And so, you know, staying dry was not an option for me this morning, but I had a choice. I could choose to be mad about it or I could choose to laugh about it. And when I was finally able to laugh about it, I, I, was, I was better internally and I was better to be around, too. I mean, no one wanted to be around a wet, grumpy pastor. I mean, that sounds like the worst company I can think of. And, and so that's, that's what we're looking at, is how do we respond to the things that happen to us? And, and specifically today, how can we respond to suffering? Because as we've seen throughout these last few weeks, there, there's an abundance of suffering in the world. I mean, we just hear about one thing after another, after another, after another. How can we respond to it? How can we even think about talking about joy whenever things like that are happening in the world? And so that's what we're looking at today. Uh, where we've been, we, we, started, um, we started each sermon this week with this quote from German theologian Jürgen Moltmann. He says, we are created for joy. We are born for joy. Joy isn't something that's foreign from us. It's not something that's foreign for our faith. I mean, if you've grown up in the church, if, if you've grown up in certain traditions, you might almost think that joy is like, joy is the enemy, right? If, if you're smiling too much, you're probably doing something sinful because no, one's, no one who's following Jesus should have that much fun, right? I mean, sometimes that's what we think. But what Moltmann says is it's actually the opposite, is we were created for joy, and so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what are the qualities that we can have that enable us to experience the joy that we were made for. And so we've talked about four qualities of the mind. 
Those are perspective, humility, humor, and acceptance. And, uh, and so, you know, all of those things were active for me today. If I could change my perspective from focusing on the wet half of myself and focus on the dry half, like I was good. Uh, if I had humility and realized that nobody was thinking about what I looked like, like nobody cares, like then I, I felt better. I could laugh at myself and just accept things. Like all of that, it, it was almost like God sent the rain to give me a reminder of where we've been. Okay, that's probably not what God intended, but that's kind of what it felt like. So those are the four qualities. And the four qualities of the heart are forgiveness, um, gratitude. Today we'll talk about compassion, and next week we'll talk about generosity. But each of those has to do with how we respond to the things that happen to us. And so last week when Pastor Mark talked to us about gratitude, it allows us to see what is good and right and not just what is bad and wrong. Because we have a tendency to focus on the things that are wrong, right? I mean, all of the, uh, all of the social media algorithms know this. That's why they deliver up to us the stuff that's most likely to, to trigger our amygdala and have us respond negatively with fear, with anger. And those are the things that, that we kind of gravitate toward. And so gratitude helps us not to focus on those things and to see that there are good and right things in the world and to remember and give thanks for those. And so we had this beautiful quote from Brother David Steindl Rast. This is what he said. He said, when you are grateful, you are not fearful. And when you're not fearful, you aren't violent. If you're grateful, you're enjoying the differences between people and respectful to all people. A grateful world is a world of joyful people. Grateful people are joyful people. A grateful world is a happy world. We can experience joy whenever we choose to be grateful. And you know, sometimes we we ask the question, what are you grateful for? I think that's the wrong question. What are you choosing to be grateful for? Because it's not just a feel. I mean, it can be a feeling, but if we wait to feel grateful, then we're missing out on a lot because gratitude is a choice. It's something that we can choose in any circumstance to say thank you, to recognize the gifts that we've been given to give thanks for the gift of air, even to give, th- give, give thanks for the gift of rain. Whatever we are, there's something that we've been given that we did not earn that we can be thankful for. But, so we know that we have the choice to, to choose joy, and we're talking about the ways that we can do that, but one of the challenges that we face, one of the, maybe the main challenge that we face, is the problem of suffering is the problem of suffering. It's one of the the chief obstacles to joy, both experiencing suffering and seeing suffering in the world, seeing the suffering that other people are experiencing. And it causes us all kinds of problems and can even cause us to, to question God's goodness, to wonder, you know, if all of these things are happening, is God really good or, or is God powerful enough to, to do anything about it? Is God even there? I mean, it causes us to ask questions and, and to struggle with those things. And, and yet suffering is, is one of those things It's not something that any of us can, can avoid. I mean, it's something that, that is, is present from the moment we are born, right? I mean, what is one of the most painful experiences, childbirth. I mean, one of the most joyful and also painful, and it continues throughout our lives. Suffering is inevitable. It's part and parcel of being alive. And, and yet, whenever, particularly whenever we're experiencing acute suffering, it's almost all-consuming. When we're, we're, when we're suffering, it's difficult to focus on anything else, isn't it? If you've ever had a migraine, you know this. Whenever you have a migraine, can you think about anything else that's going on? I mean, really, all you can focus on is the pain that you're in. And suffering is like that. Whenever we're suffering, whenever we're in pain, that's, that's all, it's hard to see anything beyond that. It's almost like it, it takes up all, all that we can see. And, and so it's difficult. And, and so today, I would love to stand here and tell you the secret to escaping suffering. I would also write a best-selling book, and I would go on a tour to tell everyone how they can stop suffering. 
If I did that, I would be lying to you. There's not a way. There's not a way to avoid suffering. And and in fact, Jesus doesn't promise anywhere that we won't suffer. He actually tells us the opposite. This is what he told his disciples. He said, I've said this to you so that you may have peace. In this world, you will face persecution, but take courage, I have conquered the world. And so he doesn't say, don't worry, I've conquered the world. You will have no more problems. He says, you will have problems, but we can take courage in the midst of those problems because he's conquered the world. And in the midst of those problems, in the midst of that persecution and suffering, we can, we can have his peace. And so that's the promise. And, and in fact, he didn't choose to avoid suffering himself. He actually chose to suffer with us, right? Because, I mean, that's a choice. He didn't have to endure the things that he endured. He, he could have just stayed in heaven and said, you know, look at all of those people. That must be really hard for them. That's not what he chose to do. He chose to come and to be with us and to experience the things that we experience, including suffering. And so this is how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. I mean, that's kind of strange language, like for him to, to having equality with God, to, to have stayed and enjoyed what that status meant for him would have been exploiting it almost. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being born as one of us and everything that that entailed including pain and suffering. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's something that he chose. And so we don't follow someone who, who just like tells us stuff from up on a pedestal, like looking down on us, but we're following someone who's actually experienced the things that we experience, who's actually suffered and even to the point of dying for us. And so we don't have someone who's unsympathetic, but, uh, but we have someone who's experienced the things that we experience. And it, it's worth pointing out, particularly with all the things that are happening in the world, that, that the source of our suffering is not God. God doesn't cause our suffering. Sometimes, we, you know, we ask the question, you know, we say things like everything happens for a reason, you know, well, why did God let this happen? It must have been because of this. And, and that's not, I mean, th- that's a whole sermon on its own, but it, I just want to point out God doesn't cause our suffering, but God can bring good out of it. And that's what God does. God transforms our suffering. We read this in Romans 8, 28. For, for we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so God takes those things. God doesn't cause those things, but God takes them and transforms them. And so that's what we're looking at today is how can God transform our suffering and the suffering of the world? Because we can't avoid it, particularly when we, we can't avoid necessary suffering, but we can choose to reduce and even avoid unnecessary suffering. So, so what are we talking about here? There are some kinds of suffering that are necessary. Like if you, if you were outside today, you can't avoid being wet. It's just not possible. But you can choose to avoid being mad because you're wet. That's unnecessary suffering that you're causing to yourself. There are certain things that, that are just part and parcel of being human that we can't avoid. Um, birth is painful. Like there's no way around that, uh, even with epidurals. You know, whenever we get older, uh, there are things that I can try to do today that were no problem whenever I was 18 that 
that are not going to work out well for me and will have me sore for several weeks afterward, right? I mean, that's, that's I mean, some of that, okay, some of that is unnecessary. I, I can make better choices about the way that I'm exercising, not play basketball in the same way that I did whenever I was 18. But I mean, part of that, our, our body's aging, getting injured, getting sick, all those things, those, those happen. That's, that's a part of being human. The fact that we die, that, that people around us, that we lose loved ones, that we experience grief, all of those things happen that's, that's necessary, not in the sense that it has to happen, but in the sense that, that it happens as a part of, of being alive. But there's also unnecessary suffering that, that we can avoid, both the, the suffering that we inflict upon others that oftentimes is entirely avoidable. We can choose not to commit violence. We can choose not to say hurtful things to people. We can avoid that. And we can also choose not to, not to respond to suffering in a way that increases our own suffering. We don't have to choose to respond to things in a way that actually makes them worse. And, and really, it's a choice that we have to make because suffering can embitter us or it can ennoble us. The difference is whether we choose to find meaning in it. Whenever we allow God to bring money, meaning out of our suffering, that's a paraphrase of something Desmond Tutu said. But, but it's our choice. It, it can make us better or it can make us bitter. But we have to choose how we respond. And one of the really powerful experience, um, uh, examples that he talks about is, is Nelson Mandela, someone that he knew extremely well and their work together to end apartheid in South Africa. And uh, many of you know Des- or Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison as a result of, of his work. Um, and so this is what he says, uh, this is what Tutu says about Mandela's suffering. He says, after those 27 years, Nelson Mandela emerges on the other side as someone of immense magnanimity because in an extraordinary way, his suffering helped him grow. Where they thought it was going to break him, it helped him. Well, what Desmond Tutu saw in the experience that Nelson Mandela had in being wrongly imprisoned for 27 years, subjected to awful living conditions and hard manual labor, is that that experience is what made it possible for him to come out and lead a united South Africa following the end of apartheid, not taking the things that he had experienced and then getting revenge for them, which would have been tempting for anyone, but he was able to lead in a different way because of the things that he suffered and the way that he chose to respond to them. Now, I don't think that he probably thought that was a good thing, that he was in prison for 27 years. Certainly, his family would not feel that way. But, but without that, we may not have had the man who, who's inspired so many countless people and who led South Africa into a time of peace following the end of apartheid. His choice to respond to the way he did to his suffering made that possible. One of the other things that Tutu notes is that suffering makes it possible for us to appreciate the blessings that we take for granted. Having lived in a South Africa that was not free, uh, Desmond Tutu said that he was able to appreciate freedom in a way that those who were born after him were not able to. They hadn't experienced the absence of freedom, and so they didn't appreciate it in the same way that he did. He appreciated it because he had experienced its absence. And, and there are things, whenever we're going through that, I mean, um, whenever you've been in serious pain, it makes you appreciate not being in pain in a way that you just don't if that's normal for you, right? I mean, if you're a, a new parent, you also appreciate sleep in a way that you never could have anticipated prior to having a child that kept you up at all hours, right? I mean, it's the absence of things that enables us to appreciate them. 
I, I learned this whenever I was running. I, I ran my first 10K race, and um, it, it was an out-and-back course. And so basically you would run 3.1 miles, and then you turn around and run the exact same course back. And the first half was pretty good. You know, it was, it was going pretty well, just kind of really flat, and, and I was feeling pretty good. And then I turned around, and all of a sudden I had to run uphill and if you've ever run uphill, it is a lot less fun than running downhill. And, but I didn't remember that I had been running downhill. I just thought it was flat. I didn't even appreciate it until now I've got to go up a hill whenever my legs are much more tired than they were during the first half. But I didn't appreciate it until I knew. I mean, it was unbelievable. I was getting, I mean, I felt good because I was getting a boost that I wasn't aware of. But once it was gone, it was different. I think I still finished, but anyway, it was less fun than I thought it was going to be. But we don't appreciate those things. We don't appreciate the things that we have until they're often until we don't have access to them anymore. One of the other things about suffering is that it can often lead to additional growth, if we cho- again, if we choose. But this is one of the things that social scientist Arthur Brooks says. He says, researchers have consistently found that most survivors of illness and loss experience post-traumatic growth. And so often the things, now certainly, I don't want to belittle anyone's experience, there, are th- there is suffering that is debilitating, but there's also an opportunity for growth in many instances, in, in fact, most instances, that we can actually come out stronger as a result of that, in, in a similar way to what was experienced by Nelson Mandela. And so we can experience growth as a result of the things that we suffer in, in the same way that our muscles get stronger through um, facing resistance, and, and that's the choice that we can make. Because though it's painful, suffering and difficulty can be great teachers if we choose to receive their lessons. But that's a choice that we have to make. Not an easy one, but it is something that we can choose. And because of that, we, we read what Paul said to, to the Romans. He says, we also boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Anyone who ran track or cross country in high school, you know that suffering leads to endurance, right? I mean, that's the only way to get there. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And so suffering is not something that, that we seek out. Is, is, I don't think it's a good thing, but good things can come of it if we choose to accept them, if we choose to find the meaning in it, and if we choose to let God use it to help us to grow so that we can use it for others. Because uh, we know that there's so much suffering in the world, we can actually allow our suffering to lessen the suffering of others. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. His ministry reveals a deep concern for human suffering. And what did he spend most of his time doing? Teaching people, healing the sick, casting out demons, setting people free. He was all about helping people who were suffering and responding with compassion. And, uh, and so we see this in, in uh, some of you know what is, I don't, I don't actually know if this is true or not, but, but frequently it's said that there's a shortest verse in the Bible. Do you know what that is? Two words, Jesus wept, right? Well, this, this translation is not the same as that, but, but this is where it comes from. Um, whenever Lazarus died, Jesus came and um, was talking to, to the family. He said, where have you laid him, meaning Lazarus? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And what did Jesus do? He began to weep. And so they said, see how he loved him. And yet, what an interesting thing. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead just a few verses later. But how did Jesus respond to, to the pain that his family was experiencing? I mean, his, response, his compassion was so aroused that he wept. Jesus cried. He responded to suffering with compassion. 
And so we see this in, in countless examples, but here are a few. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus went all through, about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion. That was very timid, but yes, compassion. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, a, few verse, or a few chapters later, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself, getting some solitude. And when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had what? compassion. That was a little bit louder. He had compassion for them and cured their sick. This was even after he had gotten on a boat to get some time by himself, and they came and found him anyway. But he didn't respond by saying, guys, I'm trying to rest. Can you give me a minute? Which, I mean, that's okay to do too. But his response was compassion, and he began to heal them. We see another example in the Gospel of Luke. As Jesus approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow, and with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had what? Compassion. Oh, that was great. He had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep, and then he raised her son from the dead. This was someone who, who as a woman in that society who had lost her husband and lost her only son, had basically, was basically destitute, and his response wasn't, that's going to be really hard, I'm so sorry. He helped her. He helped her. And uh, this, this is how it finished. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, rise. And the man rose. Because compassion wasn't just something that Jesus felt. It wasn't just an emotional response to what happened to him. It was a catalyst that led him to act. And the kind of compassion that Jesus embodies, the kind of compassion that he calls us to, is not just feeling emotionally whenever someone is suffering. That, that's important. It's part of it. But actually, it's actually responding to do something about it. It's actually doing something to help reduce the suffering of others. And, and so this is also something that Paul taught. He taught the, the Colossian church, um, th- what he said was, clothe yourselves with compassion. And so this is how he puts it. As God's chosen one, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I think that the metaphor that he uses of clothing yourself is so interesting because how often do you have to get dressed? Every day. If you don't want to get arrested, you got to do it every day. And, uh, you know, in, in, in a marriage, I, I use this verse almost every wedding that I, that I officiate, but in a marriage, in, in any relationship, that's something that you have to put on every day, compassion and patience and all of those things. And, and if you're going to, to live in the world and be a follower of Jesus, you have to put on compassion every day. And then wearing that, as it were, changes the way that you interact with the world. That's what Paul taught. And whenever we do that, God can take our suffering and make us compassionate toward others who suffer, particularly those who are suffering in similar ways to the ways that we've, to what we've experienced, because we know what they're going through. And uh, that doesn't make us callous. It actually makes our heart go out to them more. And so we're able to respond with compassion. And so that's the example that Jesus sets for us. It's what he teaches us to do. It's what Paul teaches us to do. And yet, it's also hard sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to respond with compassion. There, there are several obstacles that we face. And so sometimes, you know, it's just we, we don't know what to do or what to say. We, we avoid people who are suffering because, you know, 
I mean, I, I know they're going through some stuff, but I also, you know, I don't really know what I can do that would help. I'm afraid I would say the wrong thing, and so we end up just avoiding them. In, f- in fact, people who are going through grief sometimes feel, feel more lonely because people avoid them because they don't know what to do, which just makes it worse. And yet sometimes we find ourselves in this situation where, like, you know, I want to do something. I just don't know what. I want to say something that would be helpful, but I don't know what. Sometimes we also face the, the opposite problem. We've done so much for other people that, that we get compassion fatigue. We start, you know, we're, we're tired whenever those demands are high, and particularly folks who are um, in, in service fields, uh, teachers, medical professionals, you, you've experienced this over the last few years. You're just tired of having to give so much. And so um, whenever we go through that and we see someone else who needs help, it's like, I just helped like two dozen people. I don't think I have it in me to do any more, right? I mean, that's a real obstacle, And then sometimes we're afraid of confronting the suffering and the emotions of others. It it feels too acute. And particularly whenever we've got something that we haven't fully worked through yet, it's like, you know, I just can't take on what they're experiencing right now. And, you know, a lot of times we're looking for what's the perfect thing to do? What's the thing that'll just fix it? And, And I love the way that Henry Nouwen describes how we respond. He says, what we desire most is to do away with suffering by fleeing from it or finding a quick cure from it, finding the quick fix. And so we ignore our greatest gift, which is our ability to enter into solidarity with those who suffer. What is he talking about being in, in solidarity? Basically, just, just being with them, just being with them. If you look at the dictionary definition and, and the etymology of the word compassion, I mean, what it literally means is to suffer with, suffering with people. And uh, Paul, Paul includes this in, the, in the, his letter to the Romans. He puts it a little bit differently, but he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I mean, what he's talking about essentially is compassion. And so whenever you don't know what to do, whenever you, I really want to do something, you know, this, my neighbor, my friend, whoever it is, is hurting, start by showing up. That's the first step. You can't do anything if you don't show up. And you may not do the right thing, you might not do the perfect thing, but just by showing up, you can do something. I remember whenever I was in college, my dad had a stroke, and we didn't know what was happening. Some of you know this story. And uh, we were just sitting in the waiting room and just kind of waiting to see, you know, how it is with strokes, if he got better. And uh, so outside of the doctors and nurses and the people who were caring for him, nobody could do anything. And yet I remember there were people who just sat in the waiting room with us, and we were there till I think, it, for just hours late into the night. I still remember John and Floyd who, who just sat with us, and there was nothing they did that made it better except they were with us, and that made all the difference. And, and still, I'm still grateful for the people who were there with us during that difficult time. They showed up. That was all. And uh, we see a great example of this in the book of Job. Some of you, if you've read that, you know, Job's friends turned out not to be great friends, but they actually did really well in the beginning. Um, When Job's three friends heard all of these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. I I should have started like right here after all of those names. But they met together to go and console and, com- and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. If you, if you don't know the story of Job, Job basically lost everything, lost, lost his family and was covered in sores. I mean, suffered everything that you can imagine. They, and it was so bad, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. They saw the suffering that he was going through and they didn't try to say the right thing that would fix it. They didn't do anything 
but they sat with him. And if you've been through periods of grief and suffering, you know how powerful it can be for someone who will just be there and sit with you. That's what his friends did. Then a couple verses later in chapter 4, it, it kind of goes downhill. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? It's like, will you be offended if I say something? What? That's a good cue. That's one of those things like, don't say what's coming next, right? It's not going to get better. And, and it didn't. You know, Eliphaz thought he knew why. Here are the reasons you're suffering, Job. Not good. Don't go for it. I mean, that's really, whenever we try to explain things, that's when it goes awry. I know what's going on here. God told me. And, uh, but, but whenever we keep our mouths shut, whenever we just show up, we can make such a difference. And particularly when we get in those, those stages of when we're feeling burning out and fatigued for, from doing so much for other people, one of the things that we have to return to is solitude, is solitude with God. I mean, that's exactly what we saw Jesus doing. He, he actually got in a boat to get away with the crowd. And uh, that's an argument for buying a boat, maybe. Don't tell anyone I said that. That's probably not good theology. But he, had, he knew that he had to get away. And uh, the practice of solitude with God empowers us to continue showing up. And uh, Thomas Merton talks about this. He, he um, has done work on the Desert Fathers who in the, I think, the second, third, and fourth centuries uh, basically saw the, the Roman Empire as corrupting the church. And so they left society. They felt like the only way that they could keep from being corrupted themselves was to escape into the desert there. And so uh, people saw the wisdom that they had and would seek them out for teaching. And this is how uh, Thomas Merton describes um, their ministry. He said, the Desert Fathers knew that they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in the wreckage of society. But once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they had not only the power, but even the obligation to pull the whole world to safety after them. And that's really where we, where we get into troubles when we try to do everything ourselves and to fix everything for everyone. Whenever we get away, whenever we spend time with God in solitude, that's when we get the power, the clarity, and the calling that we need in order to respond with compassion. And whenever we do, it changes the world. I mean, that's Think about Nelson Mandela. He had a lot of time alone in his cell. I, I don't think that's probably a coincidence. And when he did, whenever he emerged, the world was different because of what God had done through him. And that's what God can do. God can use our suffering and turn it into compassion for others. And just like as Megan said, um, as we celebrate on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and gifted people for ministry. The Holy Spirit uses our compassion not only to heal others, but to heal us as well. Because that's the beautiful thing about, about compassion, is that whenever we act with compassion, it doesn't stop with us. It doesn't stop with the people that we're helping. It continues and ripples out. And there have been social science experiments that actually show that, that acts of compassion can have effect on people two or three degrees separated from the initial act of compassion. And so this is what, uh, how Douglas Abrams puts it. He says, Experiments with large numbers of people show that if you are kind and compassionate, your friends, your friends' friends, and even your friends' friends' friends, I had to stop and think about that for a minute, your friends' friends' friends are more likely to become kind and compassionate. I mean, so this is kind of like they've done experiments and it's kind of like the person in the Starbucks line who pays for the people behind them and then they pay for the people behind them and it goes on. I mean, and, and, I mean, I know it's just coffee, but it's powerful whenever we act with compassion and it doesn't stop. It, it actually changes the people around us. 
you've, I'm sure you've experienced people like that because they're so kind, because you observe their kindness toward you, you want to act differently toward other people. You think if they can treat me like that, then maybe I can treat someone else in the same way. And it's just like a rock that's thrown into a pond. It ripples out and it changes the world. That's the power of compassion. And that's what God can do with our suffering whenever we offer it to God and let God use it. Last week, Pastor Mark shared with you the story of Anthony Ray Hinton. He um, was falsely accused of committing murder, was, was in jail for, for th- he was in prison for 30 years. And uh, I mean, essentially because of his race, they basically said, you know, we just need a black person to take the fall for this and we don't care who and no, no jury is going to find you innocent. And so he, he went through his trial. It was basically a sham. And he said, you know, after you're going through a trial where nothing you say makes a difference, you just kind of stop talking. And so he wouldn't talk to people. If a guard asked him a question, he would just write down the answer. He, he stopped talking altogether. He said he, did, he continued that for three or four years. And then one day as he was sitting in his cell, he heard the, the man in the cell next to him crying and found out that the man's mother had died. And uh, so he, he opened his mouth for the first time and said, you know, at least now you know you've got someone in heaven who's interceding with God for you. You have someone who's bearing witness on your behalf. And then he made a joke. He was able to make the man laugh. And uh, through that experience, through just reaching out and saying to some, something to someone who was grieving, he said it, it gave him his life back. His sense of humor came back. His voice came back. And he was different because of that. It actually was a part of his healing as well. After that, he started devoting himself toward helping the suffering of others. And he said, you know, I would have days where, where I, I was so focused on other people's suffering that I didn't think about my own. And those were really good days. I had great days whenever I wasn't thinking about my own suffering because helping others enabled him to move on beyond that. And now that he's been exonerated, released from prison, he continues to be a light in the world of forgiveness, of gratitude and of healing and compassion for others. That's what God can do through compassion. That's how God can take our sufferings and transform them to bless others. And so here are a few action steps I want to challenge you to take. First, I want to challenge you to spend some time in solitude. Just, just ask God, offer God up the, the things that you've suffered. And you know, maybe that's something that hasn't been fully healed yet. Maybe it's something that you've moved on from, but, but ask God to transform it and to use it for the healings of others. And then show up for someone that's suffering this week. Just show up. You don't have to fix In fact, don't try to fix it. Usually that's where it goes wrong. But just show up for someone. If you know someone who's hurting, if it's a friend, a family member, and a neighbor, um, just show up for them. You can just show up at their house. I mean, I know uh, most people don't like to answer their door if you're not Amazon, but, uh, but that can be powerful if someone comes to visit you. And um, you can also give them a call if they don't live close or even just send a, send a card. I mean, it's... if you've received a note, just someone that you don't expect letting you know that they're thinking of you, it's powerful. And so show up for someone this week. And whenever we do, God will use it to change the world, to continue to spread compassion that others might experience the healing that you've experienced. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that that you don't just look down on us in our suffering, but that you actually came and entered into it. You know what it feels like. And we pray that you would take our pain, that you would take our wounds and our suffering, and that you would transform them, that you would heal them as only you can, and that through the things that we've suffered, that we might become stronger, that you might grow our character, 
and that through those very wounds, others might experience healing as well. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that by his wounding, we are healed. And we thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.